this is Solving Problems and Starting New Ones, a show that tries to be an incubator of great ideas and a place to challenge popular wisdom. And today we're doing Healthcare Part 2 and we're talking about raising minimum wage to $15 an hour. And you get all this from a guy in the street perspective. But before we begin, before we get to that, hit the subscribe button, follow us on Facebook and share the show with 10 friends, do it up. All right, let's start things off with our 2021 post-apocalypse update of 2021. Let's talk about censorship. Is it as bad as everyone says? Well, this show couldn't advertise on Facebook last episode because of one word you're not allowed to say. Politics. Yep, our ad was rejected because we used the word politics in the title of the episode. Apparently, you have to pass their gatekeepers to be able to do so. So once again, share the show. This stifling of free flow of ideas is absolutely dangerous, because when, you, when we talk about censorship, what we're really talking about is suppression of stories not chosen by corporate media. And it's only going to get worse till enough people say enough. Recently, news broke out about the cover-up of deaths in nursing homes from COVID-19 in New York by Governor Cuomo. This news was, was reported almost a year ago by smaller outlets, and mainstream media is finally reacting as if it's something new. But it seems to be a, a good time politically to release this information, so that's what they're doing. If you listen to Chapter 2 of the education series we did, we talked about how 17 people died in the Broward County school shooting. My claim was that it wasn't the shooter's fault, but the horrendous government policies. Well, guess what got reported recently? Nora Roberts, a school board member and would-be whistleblower, had an intimidation campaign against her to keep her quiet from speaking about the corrupt spending and lack of safety measures that contributed to the murders. At the head of that uh, campaign was Robert Runcie, the superintendent who we talked about in that episode. This was reported by independent media almost two years ago and is finally seeing some light. And there's plenty of examples of people getting kicked off of Twitter and Facebook for reporting false information, only to have mainstream media report the same thing months later as the truth. And lastly, and more importantly, I talked about in episode 13 about the upcoming rise in suicides because of shutdowns and school closures. And coincidentally, in the same episode, I talked about the problems with teachers unions. Well, yet again, and sadly, this show predicts the future. After more than 10 months of studying this pandemic, we have enough data to back up the science. And the results are, whatever small risk there is in reopening schools, is dwarfed by the health crisis created by keeping kids at home. The odds of a child requiring hospitalization from COVID is about 0.06%. 17 million children are being fed from food banks due to being cut off from school lunches. A 24% uh, increase in emergency room visits for mental health crisis-related issues. Massive increases suicide, suicide attempts, depression, especially, especially among ages 11 to 14. A vast majority of these children will spend the rest of their lives recovering from this, let alone trying to catch up on lost education. And look at Florida. Almost 100% of the children are attending school regularly. And in California, they only have about 5% of the kids in school. Yet California has more kids being hospitalized because of COVID than Florida. California has been shut down for a year and has nothing to show for it other than a 30% unemployment rate and the most COVID deaths in all the states currently, because wearing a mask, shutting down schools, and shutting down businesses, unless you have a lobbyist group, of course, all work great and there's nothing to question. Now, who's to blame for keeping the schools closed and this child abuse that goes with it? The teachers unions. The United Teachers of Los Angeles, uh, a union, had a list of demands before they would allow their 30,000 teachers to return to the classroom. 
including defunding the police, Medicare for all, shutting down all charter schools. What does any of this have to do with the pandemic? Now, that's an extreme example, but there's a lot of shit being demanded before unions will allow their teachers to go to work without any care for the well-being of the children. This is the worst form of child abuse, and politicians are too afraid to go against the unions. USA Today had a headline that read, Biden wants to reopen schools, but teachers' unions resist. Then for some mysterious reason, the headline changed not long after it was released, and now it says, your children's might not return to the classroom this year. Are teachers' unions to blame? Sort of changing the narrative for undisclosed reasons. And absolutely nothing to question about any of that at all. Or else you'll get censored. So, we can continue listening to these corporate narratives meant to infuriate you with a mandate that you conform, consume, and obey. Or, you can focus on sources that cover topics that you care about, whether it's climate change, gun rights, education. There's a source out there for what matters to you. All you have to do is look, and the more people who do that, the bigger they will grow. Or, if you feel like sticking with mainstream media, the best advice I would give you is pick a couple of uh, media champions but with different views. Listen to Blaze Media, then Democracy Now. Listen to Ben Shapiro, then listen to Rachel Meadow. Then, when you're done listening or watching, realize that everything they agree on is fact and everything else is opinion. And you'll see how little facts you're given. Or, you can just listen to this show for all your information needs. Sure, I mispronounce words and can't complete sentences from time to time, but hey. This has been your 2021 post-apocalypse update of 2021. All right, all right, let's move on to healthcare part two. This is a little cherry on top of uh, episode seven where I discussed healthcare. With that being said, let's recap the solutions. Number one, change the laws regarding profits of GPOs. Unfortunately, not enough people know about this, and in fact, if you were to Google medical GPOs, pretty much nothing comes up. So if you listen to episode seven, you're in a pretty exclusive club. Right now, the average healthcare cost for a U.S. citizen is around $9,500 a year. That includes money towards Medicare and Medicaid that gets taken uh, you know, from your check. Just changing this rule, just erasing, erasing two measly sentences, will lower the cost anywhere from 25 to 33%. In 2019, the average Canadian paid $7,064. If the U.S. lowered its cost by 25%, that would put the country at uh, $7,125. A difference of $61 compared to Canada. And side note, Canada, they're facing their own problems with healthcare as the cost of, has gone up significantly each year. By 2030, it's said that they will need to dramatically change their system or risk a total collapse. So that's number one. The next step or the next move, move towards DPC, direct primary care. For an average of $50, $60 a month, that would cover 80% of your basic healthcare needs. Basically, your doctor would take care of any non-emergencies. And look up videos on how they work, and DPC is something sometimes referred to as uh, concierge care. Step three, the remainder of your health care would need to be covered by what's called catastrophic insurance, which would cover you if you broke a leg or got cancer, you know, you needed special help. That's about $150 a month, and that's before changing the GPO laws, so it could be less. Either way, we're looking at about $200 or less a month on average for excellent and better care with a doctor that will get to know you. That could as well bring down the cost of Medicare, which would lead to lowering the trillion dollar deficit as well, which, you know, because Medicare and Medicaid play a significant role in our overall deficit, which uh, maybe we'll cover that in a later episode. 
And that's the recap of episode 7. So, what's the new step we're adding? HSA, Healthcare Savings Account. I hear a lot of people say they would love to quit their job or start a new career, but they're too afraid to leave because they would lose their healthcare. Well, with a healthcare savings account, potentially you wouldn't have to worry about that. Think of it as a a safe that you have uh, at your job. Instead of you and your employer paying the insurance company that you didn't choose or have any control over the pricing, uh, you put that money into that safe. From there, you set it up so your doctor and your catastrophic insurer can take out their monthly fee. You quit your job, then you simply pick up your safe and set it up at a new job. On top of that, HSA has has tax advantages. Meaning the money you put in will give you a bit back, give you a bit of a tax break or something. I don't know. I'm not a tax guy. Just a guy in the street. Perspective. Anywho, and that's pretty much it. A lot of our tax money goes towards health care for people who aren't working for various reasons. But with these four steps in total, you at least lower the tax burden. On top of that, it would lower, uh, it would lower the cost for the employer if you get your insurance through work, which could, could mean more money in your pocket. So pretty simple stuff, right? Problem is, somebody heard we the people were coming up with ways to provide better care and lower prices, and they just there's just a certain group of people always standing in the way of our freedoms. Oh yes, that's our kings and queens. So now you're asking, what the hell are they doing to us this time? Well, pipe down, and I'll tell you. Well, the IRS actually prevents you from using an HSA with DPC. The IRS currently views direct primary care as a health insurance that doesn't qualify as an HSA expense. You can't use your healthcare savings account on just, you can't use your healthcare savings account on just anything. It has to be used for medical reasons. And for some reason, direct primary care isn't good enough for them. However, you can have your direct primary care fee covered, but only if you don't have any other insurance, meaning you wouldn't be able to get catastrophic insurance, which means major emergencies wouldn't be covered. So does any of this sound corrupt? And also, did you elect the IRS to have this much control? Yes, it does. And no, you didn't. So, how do we fix this? Well, you have the AAPS, Association of uh, American Physicians and Surgeons, which is pushing Congress to pass a bill to try and change the IRS's definition of direct primary care. You can also follow DPCAlliance.org, which is a grassroots organization that keeps updates on any changes in the law. So get involved or just continue listening to everybody cry they can't afford to go to a doctor. The answer to better health care for everybody is right in front of us. We just have to care. All right, all right. This is going to be a quick segment, so let's get into it. Let's talk about something that's been in the news a lot lately, and that is raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now let's talk about the good, the bad, and the better. According to the Congressional Budget Office, if a $15 minimum wage hike were to happen, it would move 1.3 million Americans out of poverty. That's good. However, in the same report, it pointed out that 1.3 million people would lose their job. That's bad. And I read multiple reports all saying the same thing or close to 1.3 million gets out of poverty, 1.3 million would be entering poverty. So what's the point? It is zero help. Next, 17 million workers would see an increase in wages, and people earning uh, slightly more than 15 would also see an increase. Sounds good. The increase in wage would reduce business income and raise prices on consumers, also lowering the U.S. total output. That's bad. Since the year 2000, transportation has increased 28%. 
Housing has increased 41%, and you know why if you listen to episode 21. Food prices have gone up 47%, and healthcare has gone up 72%. Along with that, the cost of a four-year degree has gone up 92%, and you know why if you listen to chapter 6 on our education series. Now, over the same period of time, minimum wage has only gone up 40%, so that's not good. Here's the thing that will get overshadowed. If this law were to pass, which it more than likely isn't, you're going to hear a lot of people say, hey, look how many people we got out of poverty and think they've done something great. Keep in mind, to get out of poverty, all you need to do is make $17,000 a year, about $326 a week before taxes. Another way to look at it is the problem with East Coast and West Coast thinking. You're going to screw over the developing states in between, and that's the way you want to look at the majority of the states, like developing countries, kind of. Most states don't have a Wall Street or a Silicon Valley to boost their economy. But it's not going to be like that forever, but it takes time. The states with low minimum wage wouldn't be able to absorb the cost of a $15 minimum wage. But because most of our talkers and thinkers are from New York, California, both places that have seen small businesses get crushed and closed down because of high wages and are moving elsewhere, they either don't care or they just they're simply inconsiderate. The big businesses, they can afford the increase. Small businesses, especially the ones just starting out, cannot. So if you only want corporations in charge of the economy, then let this law pass and enjoy being just another number still struggling to pay rent. But at least you'll be slightly above poverty. Oh, and you can enjoy uh, doing the job of two people when they're only going to pay for one. Or enjoy seeing people replaced with self-checkout and AI. And understand the mentality of people and power. Representative Ro, uh, Ro Khanna said on CNN when asked about what $15 would do to small businesses, he replied, they shouldn't be doing it by paying low wages. We don't want low-wage businesses. And of course, he had to walk back his remarks. Maybe he realized he's not in charge of making that decision. No one crowned him king. So far, one-third of small businesses have shut down permanently because of the government shutdowns. People like this are going for the remainder. And no one ever wants to point out the racist history of minimum wage that was used to price out black people who, in the early 1900s, their unemployment rate was the same as white folks. Now it's doubled. And that started as minimum wage was taking over different industries. And as advocates at the time said, minimum wage helps lower the incentive of employing the Negro. End of quote. Because at the time, black folks were willing to do the work for less than uh, you know white folks. And because of this... Black people in certain areas were making more money than white folks overall. Apparently, the government at the time just couldn't have that. So what is this new round of minimum wage going to do to people? What is it going to do to the people starting from the bottom? So what's the solution? What's a better idea? Because I don't think regular folks want to destroy small businesses or ruin lives, potentially. And before I get to it, here's the thing I like about this show and the rules that I have for it. I'm not allowed to shit all over your good intentions and call your way of thinking dumb, then call it a show. No. I shit all over your good intentions, tell you your way of thinking is dumb, and then present a reasonable solution. So I don't just get to walk away. So if there is an increase, it must be done in a way that mitigates the negative. Also, let's call this what it is. It's just politicians buying votes. So what you want to do is attach it to something like inflation not the whims of people desperate to win elections. Or else it becomes, why not 20, why not 50, why not $1,000 an hour? According to 600 economics, uh, including seven Nobel Prize winners, they concluded that the federal minimum wage should be $10.10 and attached to inflation. As inflation changes, so does the minimum wage. 
Now, some of you may think, well, maybe that's too low. To that I say, compared to what? Luxembourg has the highest with $12.40. No country has 15. It's completely uncharted territory. And the true negative and positive consequences are actually unknown. 1010 puts us on par with every other country. Another idea is simply just leave it to the states, but set wages at half of what the medium income is at those states, which makes a little more sense. To compare the economics of Massachusetts to Mississippi would be, you know, really ridiculous. For both of them to have the same rules is even dumber. That would put Massachusetts at a high level of, say, $12, and Mississippi would be at around $8 an hour if you went in that direction, which is both are a little bit higher than it is right now. That should tell you how different each state is, and one-size-fits-all solution would not work. And that's the thing about economics. If you get too cute, things start turning ugly. And lastly, stealing the words of uh, Thomas Sowell, the minimum wage is never what the government says it is. The minimum wage is zero. That's all I got for you today. Make sure uh, you follow the show, share the show. This was Solving Problems. And starting the ones, ciao.